This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We're going to come to the time where we're going to read the Bible. Like I said, we're starting our new series in Ecclesiastes. So, and it's, it's a lot, right? We're covering a lot in a short amount of time. So I encourage you guys, have your Bibles open. I'm a big fan of the physical Bible, right? I'm trying to bring that back into trends. You just got to get, like, my advice is get a nice Bible that you actually like to hold, and it does wonders for you. Uh, but we're looking at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 to verse 11 today. This is the ESV translation. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes to the north, around to the north, and it goes around and around it goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it, and an eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing, sorry, is there a thing of which is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be remembrance of the later things, yet to be among those who will come after. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, y'all. How are we? Welcome. Uh, my name is Arnaldo, if we haven't met, and it is really uh, a joy for me to see so many familiar faces. I've missed y'all, and to meet some new people as well. Before we begin, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to thank our team in the back. So if we can give them a hand, please. Clarissa and, uh, and Sarah and Brad and Nathan. Then uh, uh, the sacrifice of time and energy and stress that they output just to make sure that we can get gathered together around these parts uh, is a real gift. And so I want to thank y'all uh, especially. And we're kicking off a new series today and we're kind of, we're actually remixing a series that we've done about seven, eight years ago. And in fact, it was my first sermon ever given at Anchor Church City over seven years ago. And so I'm really, really excited. And I speak for the entire preaching team and for your lead pastor, Matt Sparks, when I speak to the hopes of what we want for this series. We hope that you would uh, feel and know the incredible relevance of this ancient book. Uh, We're going to be spending about two, two and a half months or so in this book. And that's one of our hopes. Our hopes is that all of our churches will grow. I, I want you to grow in your awareness of the formative power of our culture. You know, when people say to you, if you weren't a Christian and maybe you had a Christian come to you and say, hey, you know, God has a plan for your life. Let me tell you, so does culture. So does our world. Our world has a plan for your life. It wants to make you into a particular kind of person. And we want through this series to show you that that is true. Our hope is that we would see Christ as the answer to the ultimate question of what is the good life. Ultimately, we hope that you will grow in your love and in your affection and in your obedience to King Jesus as we explore this ancient book of philosophy over the next couple 
month. So this is what we're going to do. Before we jump into the text, I want to give us a 30,000-foot view of the book. Um, the reason why I want to do this, and I want to actually slow down before even we get into the text, I want us to understand what kind of book this is. I want, to, I want us to understand what the book is doing, uh, because it's going to help us to navigate. I want to give you tools today to navigate the next two and a half months. And so the two questions I'm going to ask today is, what is the book of Ecclesiastes? And what is the book of Ecclesiastes doing? And so you're going to have to just pardon me while I get a little bit luxury today, but I promise, I hope anyway, that it's going to pay off for you in the end. And before we jump in, help me to pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the grace that you've given us to even be here. Thank you for the health and the energy you've given us to be here, Lord. We uh, don't want to bypass thanking you for the billion mercies that we received even as we woke up this morning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in this room this morning. Uh, may you help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people. And may you help me to remember the things that will be. And I pray more than anything, Lord, um, that you would draw people near to you. And may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, a couple years ago, maybe a couple decades ago, I remember uh, being invited to a Halloween party. And uh, this was maybe, it was like October 29th. So I only, we only had a couple days to get ready. It was me, my boy Ray, and Devon, and a couple of my sisters. So this is what we did. We didn't have any costumes, okay? And we were stressed because we were invited to a Halloween party. And so we go to the weirdest place in New York City, which is West 4th Street 20 years ago. And we go to West 4th Street, and we go through all the sort of like sale racks, and we go to all these op shops to just try to figure out what I'm going to be for this Halloween party. And you should have seen me. I scoured my Facebook profile and Instagram to see if I'd uploaded that photo at one point, and it would, it would have been a gift to you to see what I would have dressed up in, uh, but I couldn't find it. So what we ended up doing, we got, we got to the party, my sister's dressed up, I think we went with a 70s theme, I had the bell bottoms and the afro and the glasses, it was lit. We walk into the party, and we are the only ones dressed up. And you could imagine, like, at that point, I don't know, I was 18, 19, I didn't care, but, like, it was, it was quite embarrassing to walk in to a party. They said it was a Halloween party, and we got dressed up. We went through all this trouble for nothing. We looked out of place. Now, if the book of Ecclesiastes was invited to a Halloween party, that's the feeling it would feel. The book of Ecclesiastes is out of place when it comes to the canon, to the book's of scripture. Ecclesiastes walks in and the other books of the Bible say, how did this guy get in? Did he sneak in? Did he pay the bouncer off? I'm not sure how he got in because it is a strange book. It is a really strange book. It is out of place. And so I want us to get our bearings as we ask our first question. Now, I did send some slides. I'm not sure if they're, oh, they're, they're working. Thank you, Clarissa. There you go. Uh, they are working. So what is the book of Ecclesiastes? I want to say this, that the book of Ecclesiastes is an ancient book of philosophy that is found in the first part of our Bibles. We call them the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And you'll find that we organize the Old Testament very differently to what Hebrews, the way they organized it. The way they organized it was they had the law, 
They had the prophets and they had the writings. And this is the way Jesus would speak about it. So when you, you hear Jesus say in the New Testament, uh, it, it has been written in Luke 24, it has been written in the prophets or the law or the writings. He's speaking about the Old Testament. And this is where we find the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's part of the section called the writings. Now, the writings were split up into two sections, poetry and wisdom, even though there's prose and history included in the writings as well. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I need you to get, is wisdom literature. That's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with an epistle of Paul, a letter of Paul. We're not dealing with the gospels. We're not dealing with prophecy. So we have to read it in a particular way. It's really important for us to know because it's to be read differently. Wisdom is concerned with the general order and patterns of living in God's creation rather than giving us specific promises for every situation. So if we approach the book of Ecclesiastes the way we would a newspaper, we're going to get it all wrong. Because wisdom is concerned with the general order and patterns of living in God's creation rather than giving us specific promises for every situation. Wisdom is different from knowledge, right? Knowledge will give you a step-by-step process, and we love that. And we can talk about all we want about how much we hate Ikea, and I do, but I love that they give me a step-by-step process to build this dresser that's not going to make the next move anyway. But we, we, we like that. We like the fact that we have step-by-step processes and instructions. Ecclesiastes will not do that for us. See, we want to be told what to do, but wisdom literature is frustrating because it doesn't work that way. Knowledge is about doing the right thing. Wisdom is about being the kind of person that does the right thing. Do you sense, do you see the difference? Where knowledge has to do with doing the right thing, wisdom is about becoming the kind of person that does the right thing in the right time. Those two realities overlap, but they are different because this is the reality. God is not after robots who just do the right thing. He is after people who are transformed by the gospel, who know who are the kinds of people who do the right thing. And so the first thing that we can say about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it is wisdom literature, and we need to get that. Now, the second thing, and I hope you're not going to stone me here, but the, the second thing we need to say about Ecclesiastes is that it is unorthodox. It is an unorthodox book of philosophy that's found in the Bible. This is what I mean. The book is framed with a beginning, and I believe it's going to be here. The book is framed with a beginning, uh, which is a prologue, which is chapter 1, 1 to 11. And it has an ending, which is uh, chapter 12, verses 8 to 14. And it is framed, it frames this, this speech, this sermon, by this guy called Kohelet right in the middle. And so we have two voices in this book, and we need to get that. Now, this, this name, Kohelet, it's not his real name. It just means teacher or preacher or assembler. And you could think of this frame as kind of like the Morgan Freeman voice, right? If you had a choice at the end of your life, and, and, and someone said, hey, uh, who are you going to get to narrate your life? I'm choosing Morgan Freeman. And so today's going to be the Morgan Freeman voice of the text. It's going to be the, the, the narrator that's going to comment on what Kohelet is doing. And he's going to be using Kohelet as a teaching device 
to teach us how to live by telling us how not to live. This happened to me back in New York when I was in retail. I'm not going to name names here. But my boss at the time was one of the worst leaders I had ever worked under. I mean, he operated through, uh, through coercion and screaming. This is before the Me Too movement. I mean, I had no recourse to actually kind of deal with it. And, and, and he, we copped all this kind of abuse. But I learned a lot. I learned how not to treat people. I learned how not to lead people. And in the same way, this, this frame narrator, this Morgan Freeman voice in the text is going to teach us what life under the sun looks like. What does it look like to live life under the sun? And he's going to hold it. He's going to gift it to us and say, well, this is, this is how you, you aren't supposed to live. And it's asking this very basic question that's touched about every single civilization known in the history of civilizations. And it's this question. What is the good life? What is the good life? Life. What is the meaning of life? And this book is going to answer that question over and over again. And this guy, Kohelet, will try to answer, and he's going to tell us he thought it was pleasure. He thought it was money. He thought it was sex. He thought it was work. He thought it was religion. He thought it was morality. And in the end, what he realizes, and the gift to us today, about 2,500 years later, is that he's going to say, it is nothing. It is vanity. It is a breath. It is smoke and mirrors. It's in our Bibles. This deeply unorthodox and deeply troubling book is in our Bibles to show us how not to live. In this book, God reveals to us exactly what life is like when God does not reveal to us what life is. In this book, God reveals to us exactly what life is like when God does not reveal to us what life is. And ultimately, we're going to learn over and over and over again in these weeks that to attempt to find lasting and true purpose and meaning is a useless task. Like, good morning. You're welcome. And even throughout this book, when Kohelet starts to sound a little bit positive throughout the book, he, he kind of just snatches the, 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 the rug under your feet. Peter Kreef, a philosopher, he's a, he says it this way. Of course, of course, not all of life is in vain in the short run. Solomon, no, Solomon Kohelet, knows that as well as anyone, it is not in vain to eat. It keeps us alive. It is not in vain to copulate. It's an old word to, uh, means to have sex. It keeps the human race alive and gives pleasure. It's not in vain to scratch a mosquito bite. It relieves the itching for a moment, but only for a moment. Hey, there's the rub. Short run, short run purpose is no compensation for long-range purposelessness. Short-run purpose is no compensation for long-range purposelessness. My man's like, hey, it doesn't work. It, it just, it doesn't work. And this is what this book is all about. It is about helping us to discover the true meaning of life. And it is right, I, I love how James said it, it is right at home in our modern age, even though it's about 2,500 years old or older. 
It's asking the same questions that we're asking today and giving the same weak answers. And if we would just, listen, if we would just get over ourselves just a little, I, I, I don't mean to offend you here, but if we would just get over ourselves collectively as a people just a little and stop believing the lie that we are any more uh, uh, sort of like better, that we're better than these folks who lived 2,500 years ago, that we're smarter just because we have an iPhone and can fly in planes, that we, somehow we think we're more, somehow we think that we've got luck on this, on this question, but we don't. We simply don't. This question of what is the good life is meant to create a chasm in us, a, a space in us that only Christ can fill. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. This question, what is the good life, is something that our culture, and I don't mean to beat up on our culture. I love our culture. I love uh, the, the, the goodness that, that, that our culture provides for us. I'm not beating up on culture here, but I, I want to say this, that our culture, both inside and outside of the church in many respects does not give us an adequate answer for the question, what is the good life? We end up, we end up distracting ourselves to death, getting so pathologically busy that we don't even have the, the, the time or the mental space to ask the question, what is the good life? What, 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 like, why do I get up like, to pay the bills? Oh, well, why do you have to pay the bills? Because I, I live in a house. And, and well, why do I do that? And why, and why, and why, and why? Our culture does not give us an adequate answer, and so we distract ourselves. We become too busy. Or, or we are, uh, we're duped to believe the lie that our thoughts create the world. That what we subjectively believe is what constitutes reality. But let me give you a news break here. That reality is reality. And we must conform ourselves to reality rather than the other way around primarily. And so before we move into the text, I just want us to have a good grasp of what we're dealing with in this strange book. And so let me double back real quick before we get into verse 1. The first thing that we want to learn is that the book of Ecclesiastes is an unorthodox book of wisdom that teaches us how to live by teaching us how not to live. The second thing I want us to learn is that the book of Ecclesiastes is seeking to expose the ways that our culture answers the question, what is the good life? As holy, holy, like W-H, like not holy inadequate. And so with that out of the way, let's jump into the text. Let me read for us the first couple of verses. The words of the preacher, I'm going from Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, Ecclesiastes is believed to be written by King Solomon, David's son, the wealthiest person uh, of, of his time. He is the Elon Musk of Israel. Right, of the ancient Near East, this is who we are talking about. And whether it was written by him or about him doesn't take away from the message. What we can be sure is this, as I previously mentioned, that there are two voices in the text, the, the frame narrator, the Morgan Freeman voice, and Kohelet, which we'll meet next week in verse 12. And now if this was a book, like it, it's, like it is a book, but if it was like its own book bound by itself, uh, verses 1 to 11 would be on, on, the, like on the dust jacket. This is giving us... Uh, the next 11 verses will give us a, a preview of what is to come. And it's this. 
It, like, it gives it from the jump. Like, we don't have to, you, you know the movies that start with the final scene, and then it goes back to kind of then discover how we got there? That, that's this. This starts from the jump saying, all is vanity. Nothing. A breath. Smoke and mirrors. It means, like, and all. And let me, the, 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 the word in Hebrew, which is all, is all. Like, all. Everything. Everything is Vanity. It is a book about futility, about meaninglessness, about the fact that all of life is a vapor, smoke, here one day and gone the next. And then the question then is, well, then why, like, why trouble ourselves? And that question is a dangerous question. It is a very, very dangerous question because it can lead you in two directions. It's dangerous because it, it either will, will lead us to give our lives to something that is real and true and beautiful and will ask everything of us to die of our false visions of what we think life is about. Or, or and the scarier part is that the, the other option is that it will literally cost us our lives because we won't be able to live under the weight of such meaninglessness. And suicide begins to make sense. When it all means nothing, nothing, when you're staring into a black void of meaninglessness, it begins to make sense. Our souls are built for more than what our culture offers us. And we can travel through life playing pretend or we can face the reality of our situation. And that's the invitation of this book. Because we must come to face to face with this question in verse 3. What does man, humanity, women, you're not excused, right? What does humanity gain by all of the toil at which it toils under the sun? And as I look out, I see teachers and doctors and nurses and executives and bakers and physiotherapists. And like, like, like all, all y'all, right? Like what, what does it all mean? What is the point of it all? What do we gain beside a paycheck? What do we gain from all this toil? And this word toil here doesn't just mean work. Toil here means all of our attempts to make meaning. That's what toil means in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not simply just clocking in and clocking out. Toil is every single thing that we do, that you do, that I do, in order to try to create meaning in our life. In Ecclesiastes, we'll see Kohelet attempt to make or create meaning through conquest and sex and religion and morality and wisdom and work and everything else that our modern world offers us to find a way to find, right, like discover or, or make meaning. In other words, in other words, toil Toil is our way of making ourselves believe that our lives matter. Like, let me just say it plainly. Toil is our way of making ourselves believe that our lives matter, that they are lasting, that there is even an eternal purpose to what we do. It's another way, it's another way of saying, it's another way of, of, of making the proclamation, I am enough. It is a way to discover our enoughness. Paul calls it in the New Testament our justification. In other words, verse 3 is asking, do we actually find our enoughness through all the ways that we try to justify our existence? This is a, no wonder Matt didn't want to do this. 
right? This is a deeply, deeply human, human and troubling text. And then Morgan Freeman continues in verse 4. He says this. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. At using observations, this unorthodox wisdom teacher, Kohelet, he, he, he looks out, and he, he, the narrator is simply echoing what is about to come, and he just looks at the movements of humanity. Like, people come, people go. The sun rises, the sun falls. The wind blows here, it blows there. Rivers continue to flow on and on and on and on and over 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 again. And it's like, what is the point in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. A que será, será. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, it, it it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. You know how frustrating it is to sit there at my desk at home and think I have an original thought, and then I pick up a book, and I'm like, oh, I could have published that. He concludes in verse 8 that all things are just full of, of exhaustion, of, of weariness, that the more we think about it, the more tired we become because we can't get a straight answers. Whatever happens, happens. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the philosophy of Kohelet in the mouth of the narrator, priming us for what is about to come. That there is no adequate or satisfying answer to the question, what is the good life? And this reality, this reality that, that we want driven home every single week through this very realistic and depressing book is, is, is nothing that you are not already feeling. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not introducing something that maybe you haven't had words for before. This weariness of trying to answer the question, even if you've used different language for it, of what is the good life? What is the meaning of my life? Trying to figure out whether it's because of the voice of our parents or our teachers saying you're not enough. Every single day of our lives we're trying to justify our existence. What is the good life? And we know, and I know standing up here, that if there's anything true about us as modern people, is that we are full of weariness. We are tired. Unless you think that COVID did it, COVID didn't make you tired necessarily. What COVID did, it exposed us. It exposed me. It gave us the opportunity to see what is right there. What is the good life? We're full of weariness because we, so, we try so damn hard to make something of ourselves, to prove ourselves, 
to feel like we are enough. And we go all out on all sorts of self-salvation projects, self-justifying projects. And we say things with our lives that, that we don't even say with our lips, right? Especially if you're a Christian. We can say with our lives something like, I am what I accomplish. We can say that with our lives even if we don't say that with our lips. We say with our decisions things like, money will make me happy. Right, like, like, like we, we live with this illusion, like every single honest, famous person has said either this will not make you happy or they've blown their brains out. Like that's just, that's just being honest. And we're like, no, 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 but not me. Like I, I, it'll actually make, it'll, it'll make me, it didn't make them happy, but, but it'll work for me. We say things with our relationships, things like if I just sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or casually hook up, I will find love and I will feel love. We say things with our time, like if I work enough, I'll finally be enough. And this is weariness. This is exhaustion. And this is the weariness that the book of Ecclesiastes will expose in us. You see? Ecclesiastes is the question that only Christ is the answer to. The answer to the question, what is a good life, is not necessarily a thing or a new philosophy, but a person. Matthew 11 says this. These are the words of Jesus. These are orthodox words. Come to me, he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We often think when we come up against weary people, they, 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 don't, they don't need a yoke. They don't need another work tool. They, they need rest. They need a vacation or, or a mattress or a mani-pedi or something to relax. And Jesus gives us not escape, but he gives us equipment to carry life, which is far more, far more powerful. The answer to the ancient question is found in the justifying work of Jesus, that we no longer feel the need to find or create our own meaning, our own worthiness, our own enoughness, because Christ is our meaning, because Christ is our worthiness, because Christ is our enoughness. You see, when we put down when we put down all the ways that we are toiling, toiling to make something of ourselves, we are free to receive the good word, the good word that says we have been created by a good and loving Father, the good word that says even though we have gone astray, he is inviting us in, the good word that God in Christ has come near to pay for our sins. It's this word. It's this word for you. If you're tired here and you're, you're, you're sick and exhausted of trying to make yourself into something, this is the good word. That while we were yet sinners, while we were far from God, Christ died for us to bring us home. And now, listen, now that becomes your primary identity. That becomes the truest thing about you. That becomes the heaviest, like the, the heaviest thing in your life. And, and what happens in space when something is heavy? It has the greatest gravitational pull. So everything else 
is surrounding that. This reality that you were made new in Christ, that you have been given a new name, is the heaviest thing about you. So that when you see yourself in the mirror, you're not worried about making something of yourself. Because he has already. You are concerned with using whatever is in front of you to make Christ look as beautiful as he really is. Your life does not now have Jesus as a very, 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 very important part of your life. Many of us here uh, uh, love to, you know, Jesus is, is the, most important, the most important part of my life. Scripture has no place for that. Scripture has no place for having Christ as part of your life. Colossians 3 says that Christ is our life. He's not a part of our life. He's not the most important thing of our life. He's not what we prioritize. He is your life. That in Christ, he is your life. And when we see him, we will be like him. That is the good life. And so, as I invite the band up, my hope, my prayer throughout this series is that you would see that and that you would know deep in your bones that you are loved, that you are seen, that you are known, that you no longer have to toil to try to make something of yourself, that you would continue to ask the hard questions. My hope is that you would surrender your life to Jesus today if you're not following him. My hope is that you would put down the toil that creates so much weariness in our lives and that you would receive a new identity in him. And so church, this is, this is what I want us to do. I want us to get after it through this series. I want us to show up and show out and let's make hell take notice of a small group of disciples who are serious about taking ground in the world for the sake of the world. So let's buckle in and let's buck against the lies of our culture that says we need to create or find our own meaning because Christ is our meaning. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that we no longer have to uh, strive to make something of ourselves, that we no longer have to live against the tyrannical pressure of saying, go and make your life mean something. Because in Christ, we have received a new word. We have received the reality that life in Christ is the good life. That Jesus, you are the good life and that you waste nothing. And in the end, nothing is in vain. Nothing will be wasted. Nothing will be lost. And so help us, Lord, to see this, to know this, to feel this, to live this. And it's in your precious name that we pray. And the church said, amen.